eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The loudest, the biggest, the brashest. New York is its own character in every play. The bad thing about New York is the pressure. You're always under pressure. Here are the stories about those plays. It's New York Accent with Damon Amendolaro. So I go to see Dr. Stark in Houston, Tennessee, and he goes, Boy, you sure done it, boy. I said, What? He said, You'll never catch again. I said, What are you talking about? Ah, oh, he said, Yeah, I go. So he checked me. Yep, he did it. He tore the ligament. If you held a vote for most interesting baseball life ever, bringing into account a career both on the field and legacy off it, you might just land on Tommy John. Winner of 288 games, an astounding 26 seasons pitching in Major League Baseball. He played in three dynamic World Series involving the Yankees and Dodgers. He was there for Reggie Jackson's three home runs. He played for legends Walter Alston and Tommy Lasorda. He signed a free agent deal with the Yankees, then befriended George Steinbrenner. And oh yeah, that surgery. The one that bears his name. He broke into the bigs in 1963 and had an elite season going a decade later when the arm, the elbow, the ligament snapped. And then the experimental procedure that followed seemed to make him better. Today, a pitcher getting Tommy John surgery might give his career a boost. In 1974, oh, this was like trying to land on the moon. Here are the stories about the fall classics when Thurman Munson passed away and how John feels he may have been internally blackballed from Cooperstown. Oh, and the surgery. We've got to talk about the surgery. This is Tommy John's New York accent. Tommy, how are you? I'm fine. I I had two 40-year terms with uh, Steinbrenner. (laughs) (laughs) Was either one of them more successful than the other? Uh, The first one was by far. Because the first one you guys went to the the 1981 yeah. World Series, which we'll get yeah. into. It's funny if you Google Tommy John, the first thing as a baseball fan for me thinking that's going to pop you get up underwear. Is, it's going to be the surgery, going to be your record, your, your oh, baseball okay. reference page, your Wikipedia. No, it's the underwear company. Did they name that underwear company after you? 
No, the guy's name is Thomas Jonathan Patterson. Oh, okay. And he said, when I was growing up, everybody called me Tommy John. And so it? that's what I went by. I, I went by, and then he started this company, Tommy John Underwear, and it's very, very, very expensive underwear that I have nothing to do with, and I get no money on it. It's a melodic name, Tommy John. It just sounds good rolling off the tongue, and I, I have to imagine that if he, maybe he doesn't even know this, but he must have gotten his nickname based on your popularity, wouldn't you think? Well, that's what I said. I started uh, seeing how old he was, and when he was out there playing and all, that's when I was in my prime, and my name was out on the sports pages and uh, the TV every night, and he picked it up like that. So, you know, God bless him. He's a good businessman. Do you at least get free underwear? Nope. No. Not Come on, Tommy John underwear. Hook up the real Tommy John with some free undies at the very least. If I were back in New York right now and these underwear, they came out, I would get one of my friends that has the nose that are bent like that and say, hey, Goomba. And I would be getting something from him that I can guarantee you. <laughs> So you got a buddy in New York because you know people who know people after you played in New York that can yeah. go go make something happen if they that's, if you needed right. something to happen. That's right. You you know a guy. You know a guy that knows a guy. <laughs> well, your story begins in Terre Haute, Indiana, as you're growing up in the 1950s. I have right. to imagine that must have been amazing childhood. What was what was your youth like in Indiana back in the 50s? Basketball. I mean, I you know, we played baseball, but baseball was what you did in between basketball seasons. And basketball was the sport in Indiana. And I played it, and my dad, uh, I, I knew it was time to start practicing basketball because my dad would be taking out his summer garden, and I knew, okay, then I got my buddies over and we would stomp the dirt and then we just bounce a basketball. And my sister's six years older than me, and she's very, very, very pretty. And needless to say, she had a lot of guys trailing her, and they would come over and they play basketball. We, you know, well, if you're going to play basketball in my backyard, I'm going to be part of it. Nice. So I, I learned to play basketball by playing with older guys, which really helped. Did you dream of playing for the Hoosiers or Indiana State or a, a college basketball team in the state? I had 50 scholarship offers wow. in basketball. Wow. And I had one in baseball. University of Illinois offered me a baseball scholarship, and the baseball coach said, we're going to let you, uh, you can, you can try to play basketball here. Uh, you know, cause most of the time, if you go on another sport scholarship, they want you to honor that scholarship full time. Right. You end up going into baseball and you begin your career with the Cleveland Indians and then mm -hmm. you end up with the White Sox. And I want to ask you about 1968 because that's your first breakthrough season. You get named to the all-star game. You have double-digit wins that season, 
and your ERA is a microscopic sub 2198. Now that's an incredible ERA no matter what, but that really stands out. And that's the year that Bob Gibson has the great pitching season. Danny McClain yep. wins 30 games the last time anybody's done that. And then they raise the mound. I'm sorry, they lowered the mound. Yeah. What was it about in 68 that gave you such such success? And what was it about the summer that that helped pitching dominate so much? I, I think the mound at that time was 15 inches, I think, from where the rubber was to where home plate was. So you're throwing on a downward angle like that. It just made it easier to pitch, you know, and guys would swing the bat. And I I didn't strike out many. So they're hitting balls on me, and I needed good defense, especially infield. You do a great podcast series on both YouTube as well called Rubbing Elbows. And the most recent episode that I saw was with Johnny Bench. And yes. You were discussing with Johnny your velocity, and he said you had a pretty good fastball, but you didn't really choose to use it much. And you said, yeah, it could have topped out at 90, 91, but you decided to pitch between 85 and 87 or so. That's that control that you're talking about right there. Why yes. was it that you didn't feel, even in your youth, that you needed to really let loose with your fastball? Because I was getting the guys out with my less-than-fast fastball. The Cincinnati Reds, they thought I was always doing something to the baseball, cutting it or scuffing it or whatever. So whenever I pitched against them, I had my glove here, and I would go in and I would move my hand around it, and they would come out, check the ball, check the ball, check the ball. <laughs> so I'd throw the ball in, the umpire looked at it, throw it back to me, and I'd do it again. Check the ball, check the ball. And they were worried more about what I was doing to the ball rather than worrying about what I was doing to them. This is the big red machine with all of those Hall of Fame yes. hitters that are all worried yes. about you? Yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but it was fun playing with them like that. It was fun. Yeah, it was fun. So you just did it out of an economy of effort. You could pitch faster, but you just knew, hey, if I didn't have to unload my full chamber of, of speed velocity, right? Why, why bother with it? It, it helps. It helps. Well, my if I'm getting batters out with my sinker and my curveball, why do I want to throw something harder that would straighten my fastball out? I I wanted the ball to move all the time. The more it would move the better, you know, the better it was. And that ends up being such a huge part of how after the surgery you have this incredible career. We'll get to that. You end yeah. up with the Dodgers, and now things finally have clicked in. You have a series of seasons in the mid-'70s, which you're really, really flying right there. You go to the Dodgers, you win 11 games in 72. In 73, you go 16-7. and seven. 74, 13 and 3 are cruising along, and in 73 is now the infamous injury. But let's go back. You had suffered before that injury an elbow injury, didn't you? Uh, two years earlier in 72? Well, I had bone chips, and they were in the uh, joint, and it was killing me. And so Dr. Job operated on me, took the chips out, and I went back and I pitched. Did that factor in at all to when you had your ultimate injury two years later or a year and a half later that led to the quote-unquote no. Tommy John surgery or that was totally separate? Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. So 13 and three, and you're cruising along in this great season for the Dodgers in 73. And then describe to us the moment that you let that pitch go and what it feels like in your arm and shoulder. And I, oh, right as I came forward, oh, and the ball just kind of blooped up to the plate. And, um, I went, okay, got the ball back. One, oh, same pain. I went, uh, this is not right. I walked off the mound and Walt Alston's coming out. I said, Walter, avert my arm, get somebody else in there. And I go over to our trainer and I said, Billy, get Dr. Joe. He said, Tommy, I've already signaled him. Wow. And uh, Job was down, met me in the clubhouse. You know, I changed shirts and got a dry uh, undershirt on. And uh, he said, why don't you got all these people here that want to talk to you, the press, uh, the TV, the radio. Why don't you come see me tomorrow after lunch? After Because my last surgery is at 1 o'clock. I'll be in my office around 2. I said, okay. So I went over there and I met him uh, at his office. He checked me out. Well, you see, back then, 1974, there were no MRIs. They just had x-ray. Well, all x-ray is going to do is show you that you have a solid bone or you have a broken bone or you got chips. And But Job could take my arm and go eat, eat, and move it while holding my upper arm solid, steady. And he went, whoa, I'm what? He said, this, this shouldn't happen. He said, I want you to go see this orthopedic. His name is Herb Stark. And he's done a lot of uh, ligament replacement. He said, I think you've torn the ligament. So I go to see Dr. Stark and he's from Tennessee. And he goes, boy, you sure done it, boy. He said, you'll never pitch again. I said, what? He said, you'll never pitch again. I said, what are you talking about? Ah, oh, he said, yeah. So he checked me. Yep, you did it. You tore the ligament. Okay, so I went back to see Dr. Joe. I said, I told him what Dr. Stark said, and he said, well, he said, I don't think you've done it. But he said, uh, why don't we just let it, heal for about eight weeks and then go and try to throw and see if you can withstand the the rigors of pitching i said okay and i tried it and son of a gun I, it just wouldn't wouldn't work and um it it didn't hurt like the first time i tore it but it just didn't feel right you had already had more than a decade in Major League Baseball. You were 32 right. years old. Right. At this point, how much of this did you just weigh, you know what, that that's it. I, I had a good career and I'm going to retire on this. Was that ever a, a thought in your brain? Never. Wow. Never. I wanted to pitch. I, I love to pitch. And I was not going to go out like that. Mm. So... so 
It was it was about you didn't want the sport taken away from you. If you were going to leave, you were going to do it on your own. I was going to do it on my own uh, terms. Your own terms. Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the first time. Is this the first time the surgery is performed, or the first time a baseball player comes back successfully from it? The first time it was performed on a major league pitcher. The transplant surgery had been done, and Job had done a bunch of them on polio patients uh, in the in the knees and ankles. But uh, he had never done it on uh, on a pitcher who, you know, you make your living throwing a baseball. Is there a moment in there where you are worried, hey, this is the first time this is happening at a major league baseball pitcher. This might not go well and my career might be done. Or did you never allow doubt to creep in? Never allowed doubt to creep in. I was going to pitch again if I had to throw the ball underhanded. I was going to pitch. So that was the attitude. And and at what point in your procedure and your rehab do you feel confident, hey, you know what, this worked? When Dr. Joe gave me the okay to start throwing again, um, I started out throwing to my wife, uh, you know, just throwing balls in our backyard. And then I moved up to my neighbor who was a softball player and I threw to him and then I went to spring training, and down in Vero Beach, they have a wall. I could show you the wall right now. Uh, it was on the way from the old clubhouse to Holman Stadium, where we played our games. And I, every morning, I'd go out there with six baseballs, put the bucket down, throw against the wall. So how hard can you throw against the wall? I just threw. I threw, and... How many throws? I don't know. I threw until I got tired. And then I would go in and I'd ice my elbow down and we'd do all this stuff. And next morning, I'd be back out there again. And next day, I'd be back out there again. And I I threw to that wall six out of the seven days. And the seventh day was Sunday. And my reasoning on that was if God rested on Sunday to soak in Tommy John. <laughs> this is the entire 1975 season. Right. You are, you are out. You right. end up having a career that lasts from 76 all the way through 89. I would have to imagine even the most optimistic surgeon, medical professional, team official, could never have predicted you could have pitched until 46 years old what were their estimates in how long you might be able to pitch if it worked? They never said because they didn't know. And if you're a good doctor, if you don't know, you just let the you let the dummy like me go out there and throw the ball and he'll tell you when he can't pitch anymore. And that's what that's what I did. I I really believe I could have pitched longer, but Dallas Green had this thing in his head 
that Tommy John shouldn't be on the baseball field. I should be doing something else. Oh, that's so interesting. You pitch after the the surgery from 76 through 89. You retire after the 89 season with the Yankees. Dallas Green is with the Yankees. And so he basically said, we don't want you back? 1988, he, he takes the job and he calls me up and tells me I'm too old. I said, Dallas, I really don't think so. I, I pitched pretty decently. Ah, you're 46 years old. You should be out playing golf. You should be mowing your backyard. You shouldn't be playing baseball. Baseball's a young man's sport. You know, and everything was negative, negative, negative. So I called Steinbrenner. I said, George, Dallas doesn't think I can pitch. He said, you leave that to me. I'll take care of Dallas. And he did, but Dallas always had his hand on the switch that sucked me down on that. He, he just, he didn't think I could pitch and let me know it. And as a result, I pitched like I shouldn't be out there. Huh. So that was 88, you go 9-8 and eight with a 4 <laughs> 4 9 ERA. 89, you're 46 years old, you pitch. You go 2-7 and seven with a 5 8 ERA. And you're saying that final season, 46 years old, it was a negative situation, so it had affected you on the field. Yes, it did. If I would have had somebody out there that would have said, hey, Tommy, let's go. We can go. You know, let, let's go. Boom, boom. I, I really, really believe I would have pitched better. Well, your career after the the surgery is exemplary because in 76, you're finding your footing. You're a 500 pitcher, 10 and 10, but it's amazing. You come back and you pitch a full season. By 77, you go on your greatest run of your career, 77, 78, 79, 80. There are three all-star game appearances in there. There are two World Series with the Los Angeles Dodgers. You're pitching against the Yankees. You win 20 games three of those four years. It's extraordinary. Is it fair to say you were better as a pitcher after the surgery? Uh, Yeah, I think I understood what I had to do to be effective. I mean, I didn't throw harder, but I think I threw better. In 77, you guys make the World Series against Mm -hmm. the Yankees. Game six, World Series, the Bronx, Reggie Jackson. Okay, so... Tell me about watching Reggie dash the hopes of you guys with those three long balls. Well, Reggie can do it. And, you know, I, I, I've seen him before, but those were awesome. I mean, those are just awesome. The rest is history. We got our butts spanked. Reggie was known as a hot dog. You've ended up having quite a nice friendship with Reggie over the years. Yeah. But at the time when he hits three home runs in 77, is it one of those things that's really abrasive, really annoying because you see him as a hot dog? Nope. He just crushed the ball and he ran around the bases the way you're supposed to. You know, he didn't skip or do flips or whatever. He just trotted around and, you know, and, uh, but. Reggie could do a lot of things, and hitting home runs was one of them. He was amazing that series. He was amazing in the postseason in general. You guys get back in 78. You lose again to the Yankees at this point in time. 
Are you developing quite a distaste for the Yankees? No. No. I I enjoyed pitching against them. Uh, I thought it was fun. Well, you end up signing with them. You are yeah. a free agent. There's a right. couple of other offers that come your way, and you say, now I want to play for a winner. So you end up deciding to sign with the Yankees. How much of that was George getting involved? Did you have conversations with George, and, and he offered offered you a deal? Uh, my agent had uh, conversations with uh, Al Rosen. Al was the general manager, and uh, so obviously he's getting his cues from Steinbrenner, but Al Rosen was a baseball player. I remember when we signed, uh, we flew to New York. My agent, his wife, my wife, and me flew in. Al Rosen and Steinbrenner met us at the airport. George, ah, George Steinbrenner, how are you? Go, go, go. Rosen, let's pick up, let's go. Well, and he took off, and he's 20 feet in front of us walking through the airport. And I look at my agent, and I said, Bob, is this the way it's going to be? And Rosen says that. George was like this. He said, you know, don't, don't, just taking for what it is. But George was a good owner. I, I love playing for him. I really did. I love playing for him. It seemed like if you were a manager, he was on your back. But if you were a player, he really went to bat for you and just wanted to do whatever it took to win. Is right. that what you is that what you appreciated about him? Well, you know, yeah, he could be a pain in your rear. He was a good owner. He he paid exceptionally well, and uh, you know, so yeah, I I've just uh, I used to go down and see him in the winter in Tampa. We'd go down and play in golf outings, and I'd stop by the ballpark and see George and see his wife, Joanne, and uh, or Joan. They had a good family. You go from facing Reggie Jackson in the World Series and now being teammates with him. He was your first guest on Rubbing Elbows, the right. show that you have. So clearly you have friendship with him. What was it like being a teammate of Reggie? Back. It was just like we had uh, known each other all of our lives. And uh, we hadn't, but, uh, you know, Rich is okay. Rich is a good guy. He, but he liked doing him Reggie's way. So what was it about Reggie that you connected so much with that you said it's like you knew each other your entire lives? You, you guys must have been kindred spirits in some way. His personality. Yeah. That's, you know, that, and he hit well when when I pitched. <laughs> I helps well when he hit. <laughs> you know, one of the most tragic instances in baseball history is Thurman Munson passing away, and that obviously was with great heavy hearts that the, the Yankees themselves, everybody in New York, watch you guys come back onto the field. What was it like to try to compete after that and – the memorial night where he's in everybody's minds and it, it seemed to it seemed to really pour itself out of the field as well. Uh Thurman was a good leader. Um he he didn't let's go, let's go. He didn't do any of that stuff. He just put his uniform on, went out and played. And um I got the phone call on Thursday, an off day 
from George, and George was crying, sobbing like a baby. And I said, what's wrong, boss? And he said, Thurman died. I said, what? He said, the uh, plane crash and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So then I called Jim Spencer, and he said, yeah, Tommy said somebody told me. And then the next day, we go to the ballpark, and George is there, and he's still crying, and the guys are crying, and he said, we're going to play, and we're going to play our asses off, and we're going to do it for Thurman. And then Greg Nettles got up and said some things, and Reggie said some things, and, you know, and uh, that's what the big guys are supposed to do, but Thurman was a good leader, really was a good leader. Another difficult moment in your career was when your son, who was a toddler, fell out of a window at a vacation home. And this happened in the middle of the season. Right. And he, he fell on top of a parked car in the hood, but it braced his fall, but he was in a coma. And you get the news, and there's an outpouring of support from baseball, from people around the country for you. You, you ask for prayers and thoughts. Tell me about that moment, how you found out, and how you processed that in the middle of a season. Well, I found out my wife called me, and she was sobbing hysterically, and she said, Travis fell, hit his head, and you got to get back here. And we were in Detroit at the time, and I had just played golf that morning with uh, this friend of mine, and... Um, I knew he had a plane, and so I got back, and I called him up, and I told him, I said, um, you know, my son fell. He's, we got to get him to the hospital, and I got to fly back to New York. Can I use your plane? And he said, absolutely. So we flew back, and we landed, uh, I forget what airport it was, some small little airport in New Jersey, and my wife had had the police there. They picked me up, put me in their, their car, took me down to Point Pleasant Hospital, and we saw him, and, you know, and I got a chance to kiss him and tell him that I loved him and all that, and then the next day, uh, they took him up to uh, New York, and I had called a doctor friend of mine. I told him what happened. And he said, well, you, you've got to get to a good pediatric neurologist, neurosurgeon. I said, okay. He said, we have one of the best in the country here in this city, Fred Epstein. So at 6 o'clock the next morning, I called Fred Epstein at his home. Hello. I said, Dr. Epstein, yes. Tommy John, I was waiting for your call. Yeah. I said, you were? He said, yes. What's the your son? I said, well, he's like in a coma, whatever. Is he breathing on his own? Yes. Get him up here. Okay. So in New Jersey, uh, they offer um, helicopter transportation. So they got Travis on the helicopter with a doctor and two or three nurses and they had the IVs in him and all this and my wife and I 
followed him in our own helicopter, or not our own, but the one that we rented. And uh, we landed uh, at the heliport just down from the hospital. And um, Travis went in and uh, he was in a coma for, I don't know, 10 or 12 days. Uh, but it was a medically induced coma. And then they brought him out of it. And that fall, he was back. George wanted him to throw the first pitch out. And I said, sure. So I asked Trav, I said, Trav, do you want to throw the first pitch out? Yeah. Yeah. So what we did is uh, we took a rubber baseball and we put red paint where the stitches would be and we 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 fooled the press <laughs> because he couldn't throw a regular baseball it was too heavy for him so um i i asked reggie i said hey reg uh you were at the hospital almost every day would you take travis because i was starting the game I was the starting <laughs> pitcher at Yankee Stadium. Wow. And he, I said, I can't go. I can't take him out there. If, if I take him out there, I got to cut my throwing short and I'll be bawling like a baby. And I said, the plus he knows you, he loves you. You know, and Reggie said, Tommy, this is the biggest thrill of my life. Yes. He wow. Said, I, and so he threw the pitch. And it was right to Rick Cerrone, boom, the rubber ball. <laughs> and then Reggie picked him up and held him with his hand under his little butt, and he paraded him around and let 65,000 people. They were chanting, Travis, Travis, Travis. All the things I've done in baseball, that will be the one thing that will be in my mind forever is how the Yankee fans treated that young boy. Wow. And he made a full recovery. That yeah. is just, it's an extraordinary yeah. story. And so you end your career with the Yankees in 1989, as we mentioned. You're 46 years old. And you retire with nearly 290 wins. And in terms of Hall of Fame numbers, that's one of the highest win totals not in Cooperstown. It would be up to the Veterans Committee now to put you in. Right. But I'm wondering... Is that an honor that you still desire, or is that something that if it happens, it happens, but it doesn't really define your satisfaction with your career? If it happens, it happens. I think I should have been in years ago, but for whatever reason, well, I know the reason, but I won't say it. Um, there was one player was was voting against me all the time and getting other players that but be that as it may i've got a guy that's in the hall of fame now that's going to be on the hall of fame on the veterans committee and his name is jim cott and he said tj i'm going to politic for you he said i'm going to see that you get in the hall of fame you should be in there before me i said jim whatever i appreciate it I said, but uh, do what you have to do and let the chips fall where they may. 
So the writers had the ballot for a number of years after you retired. You right. got about 30-something percent of the vote. You need yeah. to get 75%. Then it goes to the Veterans Committee, and that's where former players are on the board, the former executives, right. et cetera. It's there in the Veterans Committee that you ha- you know of somebody that was a former player, maybe an opponent or something, that didn't like you and, and tried to make sure you stayed out. Yes. Have you ever had words with that player? No, he's dead now, so I can't. Did you want I, to say, did you know this, it was going on when it was happening? No, or? I did not. But I, I, you know, there had to be a reason why it was not, why I was not getting a lot of votes. Now, I granted a lot of guys don't, they think that, um, um, I didn't throw hard enough or I didn't strike enough guys out or whatever, but I had a pretty damn good, I, I had 288 wins. That's a lot of wins. But here's the kicker. I had 188 no decisions. Wow. That wow. tells you right there that, you know, you get a quarter of those and I've got 310 wins or wh- whatever. But So if if this player didn't like it, he's passed away now, What? why do you hesitate to say his name? Doesn't do any good. I, I would say his name if I thought my buddy in New York would take a hammer to his kneecaps. <laughs> well, he's dead now, so I guess it doesn't matter. So you can't do it, right. <laughs> <laughs> so what did this guy who politicked against you didn't like that you weren't dominant enough or didn't like your attitude or had something personal against you? I think maybe all of the above. I don't know. But I, I got that from somebody that was on the committee and they said, you know, he, whenever we have our meetings, he goes in there and tells everything why you shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. Wow. What team did he play for? I can't say. That's bizarre that somebody would use all that energy to politic against somebody getting I, in. I know it. I know it. In, bizarre. In, yeah. Well, you get to chat with former teammates, former opponents that you played right. with on rubbing elbows, which I think is really cool. Seems like you have such a good time with these guys. What's been the most enjoyable aspect to the series? Just reliving our time in baseball and like with Johnny Bench going against the big red machine, I love pitching against them uh. because they made me pitch better. And it's a it's the way Boston Going against Boston, I love pitching against the Red Sox because they had the worst horrible fans, the Red Sox and Philadelphia. But I love pitching that way because the fans, you know, God, you suck fun right now. And that would just get my innards going and it would percolate my blood. <laughs> The the cast from your surgery and your the Tommy John surgery went to Smithsonian. Did you get to go see it at the Smithsonian on display ever? Probably I should have given that to Baseball Hall of Fame. But my thing to them is, what did you do for me to help me get into the Hall of Fame? And you want me to give you my cast for your thing here? And you didn't do, do anything to help me get in? No, that's not going to happen. You know, it's interesting that it's so commonly referred to now as Tommy John surgery. Right. I 
I wonder if that would be the case if your name w- wasn't so easy to roll off the tongue. It's like, could you, could we have called it the Andy Messersmith surgery? I mean, I just, I feel like <laughs> it's perfect because your name is very melodic and it's rhythmic. And well, I, don't know, I, I think that carries some weight. When Dr. Job, after the surgery, he would go out and give um, lectures on the, you know, doing the surgery. And the name of the surgery is the medial collateral ligament replacement surgery with the palmaris longus tendon. And he said that just got longer and longer (laughs) and longer. And then I said, you know, the surgery I did on Tommy John. And then I shortened it down, you know, Tommy John surgery. And all the doctors said, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And so Dr. Job coined this the operation it should be the frank job surgery but you know it's catchy it's catchy and everybody everybody knows it as such so you've got a giveaway coming up for Mm -hmm. fans as well right yankee game tickets that uh that you've got to give away yeah we've got a uh we've got an auction a video zoom that um it's yankee game august the 4th it's Bucky Dent Bobblehead Day, August 4th. And we're going to auction off a video, and the money's going to a charity. And I don't know what charity it'll be. Uh, I'm leaning right now to Frank Siller and the Tunnels to Tower. Yeah, because, great one. you know, here's the thing when, when the towers were hit by the planes, I was on the last plane that landed at a New York airport. Wow. I was coming up from Charlotte, and we were going to LaGuardia. And we were coming up, and we took a right-hand turn, went out over Long Island, came back to land on the runway. And we were th- the pilot says, whoa, look at that twin towers. Somebody, there must be... Um, a grease fire because look at all that smoke coming out of there and everybody went over to the windows on the left side of the plane whoa 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 and we didn't know that a plane had hit it and then we landed i said something's going on because when you see the flight crew sprinting down the hallway and you're walking this way and they're going this way and go whoa something's going on so i call a friend of mine there and his wife answered the phone she goes oh my god darling where are you and i said to the we're laguardia oh you didn't hear what happened and she's crying hysterically and her husband sends a friend to pick us up you start hearing what's going on and uh, the next day, we got to get home to Charlotte. Well, there's nothing going out of New York, I can tell you that. So I call a friend of mine with one of the rental car services. And I said, hey, this is Tommy John. He said, yeah, what? And uh, I said, I need a car to go to Charlotte. I, I, I told him what happened, and he said, come on over tomorrow about... 10, 11 o'clock. Okay. So we got over there. Uh, we drove down to Charlotte that night. 
New York to Charlotte and got home. And I said, I've never, the bed has never felt so good because I mean, all that was on was the towers and all the stuff that was happening, stuff like that happens for a reason. And, and I really think that God had something in store for us to make us better people. And it's a solemn day that changed everybody's lives. Oh, no doubt about it. it did. No yes. doubt about it. What a, what a baseball life. I really enjoy your series, Rubbing Elbows. I think that's such a neat series. It's really fun to, it's well, a really it's fun watch. Well, it's fun to bullshit baseball. Because yeah. baseball is a game that you watch. And uh, although I don't watch baseball now. Why not? It's not the game I played. Yeah. Analytics because and the guys, uh, you know, and all that stuff. Come on. Throw the ball over the plate. They hit the ball. You catch the ball. You run the bases. And, you, you know, but they're going all this. What's the launch angle and the velocity, the exit velocity? I don't know. Doesn't make any difference. They made it too complicated, huh? Uh, it's just they put too much BS into the game. They over-engineered it. Yes, they did. Yeah. Exactly. Very good. Tommy John, 288 victories. He is a four-time All-Star, and he's lived one of the most incredible baseball lives ever. And so it's really an honor to have him here on the show. As he had just mentioned, there's an auction upcoming later on in the summer for Yankee fans. Also, check out his series, Rubbing Elbows, YouTube, and all places that you get your podcast as well. Perfect. This was so much fun. Tommy, thank you so much for the time today. And if I ever find the other Tommy John, I'm telling him to send you underwear ASAP. <laughs> I'm I'm coming out with my own line. Okay, hey, that's the one I'll be wearing <laughs> from thong to long. <laughs> All right, let's exactly. go. Thank you, Tommy. You're the hey, best. You are. Bye okay. bye. Man, thanks to Tommy John for that conversation. That was awesome. You know, we all know the surgery that bears his name, but I, I don't really think a lot of people know the depth of his career, and some of those stories were just amazing. And, you know, a guy like Tommy John, who's been around the block, he's now 79 years old, he's got stories to tell, and he's he's candid, he's honest, he tells it like he sees it, and you have to love that. Boy, I was trying to get that that name, just some context of the guy that that tried to keep or has kept him out of the Hall of Fame, kept Tommy out of the Hall of Fame. Tommy's a he's a good witness. He's not going to crack under pressure, right? <laughs> so thanks to Tommy John for the conversation. Let's go to the emails. You can always email me. Email us here at the podcast, nyaccentpod at gmail.com, or on Twitter or on Instagram. Follow me and tweet at me or you can hit me up in my DMs. DMs are open on Instagram. On Twitter, it's at DA on CBS. On Instagram, it's at Damon Amendo. This is an email from Frank in Massapequa. Hey, DA, heard you talking about the summer of 94 recently. And I was just wondering, that was an all-time summer with the Knicks and the Rangers going to the finals. But what do you think was the best year ever for New York sports? Frank, this is an excellent question. I love this question because in 94, we had Neil Smith, 
the GM of the Rangers on two episodes ago that built the Stanley Cup champ. And in that summer, of course, we were talking with him about how the Knicks and the Rangers were both filling up the garden every single night and both went to game seven of their respective finals. In 86, you had the Giants win the Super Bowl and the Mets win the World Series. Mets won the World Series October 86. The Giants would end up winning the Super Bowl in January 87, but those two seasons overlapped. That famous clip where at Giant Stadium on a Monday night game against Washington, there was a roar from the crowd as the fans in attendance were watching on their, their little Walkman TVs, those Watchmen's, and could see Game 7 of the World Series go to the go to the Mets. And so there was a roar of the crowd during that Giants game about the Mets win of the World Series. But that's not the best year either in New York sports history. The best year ever in New York sports history involved championships for three of our local teams. The Jets, the Mets, the Knicks. And for you Jets, Mets, and Knicks fans, how insane is it to think about not just one of them winning a championship, all three in the same calendar year. If we go back to the 68 season for the Jets, they won Super Bowl three on January 12th, 1969. Then that folds into the Miracle Mets of 1969, who a couple of months later in April start off their season. And then from January 69 through the summer, you have the Mets and that miracle run into the playoffs. And then once you get to the playoffs in October and the NLCS against the Braves and then the World Series against the Orioles is when the Knicks begin their season. So we go January 12th, 1969 to then October 1969 when the Mets clinched the championship, the World Series against the Orioles. And then the Knicks would close out the NBA Finals on May 8th of 1970. So from January 12th of 1969 through May 8th, 1970, what is that, uh, 12, 15, 16 months or something? In 16 months, the Jets, Mets, and Knicks all won championships. The Knicks defeated the Lakers in seven games of the 1970 NBA Finals. So that's that's got to be it. I... I don't think we're ever going to see that again. It'd be nice if any one of those three would win a championship, let alone all three. But thinking about three titles in the same year, man, heady stuff. You got to start with one. Let's start with one, and then we can we can carry on from there. Let's go one more parade of the Canyon of Heroes, and then we can hope that there's more that follow. But that's got to be the best year in New York sports history. That will do it for this episode of New York Accent. Once again, as I said, you can DM me on Instagram, tweet at me on Twitter, or you can email me, nyaccentpod at gmail.com. You can usually catch me weekday mornings on CBS Sports Radio on the national side. That's Sirius XM 158 or on the free Odyssey app if it's not on in your neighborhood. But also, you can check me out on The Fan, usually Saturday afternoons. Every so often, there's a Yankee game that bumps me off, but usually Saturday afternoons where you can catch me on WFN in New York. Thanks so much for subscribing to this podcast. If you haven't and you just listened to the pod this episode, please subscribe. 
Just click on that little subscribe button on your phone or wherever it is that you get your podcast. That gets you alerts to new episodes every Tuesday. And if you rate and review it as well, that helps other people find the podcast. And thanks so much for supporting us. Thanks to executive producer Bryce Gelman. I'm DA. This is New York Accent. And this is an original Odyssey podcast. <laughs>